Amen. So, how are y'all? rest of you who are here, not that you got left behind, right? Uh, <clears throat> so I got to give a shout out to my friend, Sherry. Uh, Sherry, thank you. Thank you for Winston. <clears throat> uh, Sherry gave us a goat. No, no give back season. <laughs> Winston is probably the most athletic animal I've ever been around. He is, uh, he's able to, to jump and kick and dance. Uh, he's, he's pretty awesome. Uh, the other goat we have is the one I want to tell you about. Well, let me tell you this. Did you know that, that goats are pretty, like since we got them, I've been doing a lot of reading about goats. And if you didn't know that goats, their eyes are like little rectangles. And when you see them, they're like, wow, that looks weird. But if you find out like I did, that they actually, they see the world in panorama or a panoramic view. I don't know what's the right way to say that. But anyway, they see everything. So they can see behind them all the way to the front, like everything. And not only do they see, like, everything in a, like, panorama, but they see it, their eye, like, like you can look up and down, right? And when you turn your head, usually your eyes go with you, right? When you look down, your eyes, when you bend your head, your eyes go down too. But a goat, their, their eyes stay parallel. They stay level with the horizon. So even when they look, they can look all the way down and their eyes are still looking out at the horizon. It's pretty awesome. Not Winston, but Camo, the other goat. <laughs> the other goat has this weird tick. I don't know that he's completely okay. Uh, <laughs> because he does something very strange. When he wants to look behind himself, instead of just turning his head, he flips his head over backwards. Like he literally turns his, it like lays his head over behind, like a bird behind his back. It's like, I don't, he, he looks like he's having fun doing that. I don't know, but it looks very strange. Uh, we were out at the farm yesterday, and we were fooling these goats, and that's what got me to thinking about it. And then we went and spent some time with our horses, and, and as we did, they, um, one of our horses is going blind in one eye. <clears throat> Michelle always jokes that maybe she'll be calmer uh, because at least 50, half as calm as she was before. Because, you see, horses are, they're another one. They're, they're not like goats. They're very different. Their horses, on, their eyes are on the side of their heads. And so you, if you fool with horses, then you know this, that, that they see everything on one side as it is. So what I mean by that is that if you're going to teach a horse something, you have to teach it on both sides of the horse. It's weird, right? So, for instance, one time we were riding a horse, and there was a, one of those balloons that, fallen, that fell and kind of was stuck in a tree. And you walk by, and the horse is like all freaking out because this thing is going to attack them, you know. <laughs> like that's what in her mind, that's what she's thinking. And you think, oh, man, finally, we, you go way around it, and then you turn back, and you finally get her to go by it. Well, when you come back, you got to do it again because that side of her brain hadn't seen it yet. It's pretty amazing. I mean, I'm not even kidding you that that the whole different perspective that they have. I mean, you literally have to teach them everything on both sides. You have to do it twice. Because the way they see it on one side of the brain doesn't communicate to the other side. They don't think, oh, I've seen that before. It was over there the last time. No, <laughs> they've never seen it before when it's over here. And it's completely bizarre. Anyway, that, that's, so we're, we were hoping, we were thinking that, well, if she would, if she, when she loses an eye, then she'll be half as calm. Because she won't freak out on stuff on that side. But that's not true. I think she's going to freak out always. Uh, because she sees stuff and it startles her. and uh, She's afraid of being attacked by balloons. But that's, that's all uh, got me thinking about uh, vision this week as what we see, as you've heard in, in the songs that we sang today. 
that um, the, the parable that we have is, or the story that we have that Jesus is telling isn't just about um, our physical sight. It's also a lot about, speaks to us a lot about our spiritual insight. Uh, today, I'm going to pray that we have eyes to see. You pray with me. Lord God, as we open your word and, and consider what you have given us, we ask you, Lord, that you would speak to us, that you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us ears to hear, that you'd cut through the noise of our lives to meet us here. Lord, we love you. Amen. Amen. So if you join me in your Bible, we're in Luke chapter 18, a very short passage of Scripture. Uh, I'm keeping it short today, and I'm going to go, some of you say, man, you talk too fast. Well, bad news is I'm going to talk even faster today because uh, I've got something special. We, uh, I don't have something special. Somebody's got something special for you today, so I want to make sure we have time to do that. And nobody has to get out and go check their roast beef in the microwave or in the oven. <laughs> uh, if you join me in Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 31, uh, Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that's written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. So if you don't remember, back in chapter 9 of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus turned his face towards Jerusalem and he's been on this journey towards Jerusalem ever since. So the last nine chapters have been about the, the final month of the ministry of Jesus and we're getting close to Palm Sunday. Very close, actually. But he's He's going up to Jerusalem, and he's telling his disciples, look, everything that's been written about the Son of Man, everything that's been written about me is about to happen. It's about to be fulfilled. What's he talking about? He's talking about all the prophecies of, of Moses and Elijah. You remember back, back then, back chapter 9 or so, when uh, Jesus went up on the mountainside, and he was met by Moses and Elijah. They came down, and they, they spent time with him, and they and they, told, they were talking about all these things that were going to happen. And that's what Luke is pointing us back to. You remember Moses and Elisha? You remember all the prophets of old? All the things that they've said about the Messiah who's going to come. And, of course, any disciple at the time was loving this news. Any follower of Jesus was excited that the Messiah was here. And this was good news, literally. But Jesus, doesn't, Jesus puts a, a twist to their good news. He says in verse 32, He, meaning himself, the Son of Man, the Son of God, will be delivered over to Gentiles. They'll mock him, they'll insult him, they'll spit on him. They'll flog him and kill him. And on the third day, he'll rise again. The disciples didn't understand any of this. So if, if you don't understand any of this, hey, you're in good company. When, when Easter doesn't quite make sense, you're in good company. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. They didn't know what he was talking about. It was hidden from them. That word there is crypto, where we get cryptography or, you know, lie detector, where the meaning, the true meaning is concealed. It's concealed. It, it escaped their notice. They didn't see it. They couldn't put it together, even though he'd been talking about this all along. Matter of fact, twice in the chapter in chapter nine, Jesus told them explicitly what was going to happen. In verse twenty-two, he said, "The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, 
the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. He told them exactly what was going to happen. And again, in verse 44, when they'd come down from the mountain, after the, the Sermon on the Mount, he told them again, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. He's told them again, six times. This is the sixth time that Jesus has referred to his death, right? The scriptures have, have told us that, that this is coming, this is coming, this is coming, this is coming. And yet, they didn't get it. Why? Why didn't they get it? I think they were blinded by their expectations. Blinded by expectations. You see, they expected a Messiah, a conquering king. They expected the Messiah who everybody could rally behind. That's who they were looking for. As a matter of fact, the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Matthew have the same story of, of, this, uh, of this account, except they add in another element, another conversation that happened here. And in, the, in Matthew and Mark, they both tell us that the disciples were consumed with being a part of the kingdom of God that, that we've been talking about over the last few weeks. The disciples were consumed with it, so much so that they were asking, well, so where are we going to rank in this new kingdom? Do we get to sit on your right and left? And matter of fact, one of their mothers even asked, can, can we sit next to him? Can my son sit next to you in your kingdom? In just a few days, you see, they, they would be celebrating with everybody else on Palm Sunday when Jesus comes in. His disciples were all about the coming king. All about it. And in their being all excited about the coming king, they overlooked the fact that the coming king must first be a suffering servant. That's what they missed. They, they overlooked, or they, or they tend to, just like you and I do, right? When, when something doesn't agree with the way of thinking, we kind of disregard it. We kind of, eh, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. So they yeah, butted Psalm 22, which reads this way. Oh, I have it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you don't answer. By night, but I find no rest. I'm a worm, not a man. I'm scorned by everyone. I'm despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults. They shake their heads. They, he trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. See, they over, they, that, that didn't fit with the Messiah King. And so they kind of, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 that reads this way. He was despised and rejected by man. A man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hid their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Doesn't sound like a king, does it? Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we're healed. We're like sheep and have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb led to slaughter. Like a sheep before his shears, he's silent, and he didn't open his mouth. You see, the disciples, they had expectations of glory and of victory and of, and of things being made right again. And that blinded them to what God was doing in their midst. How God was going to bring that about. 
trials and suffering. They couldn't get their minds around that Jesus said, I am going to suffer. It didn't make sense. So if the, the death of a God on Easter, and the resurrection of a God on Easter, doesn't make sense to you, you're in good company. It didn't make sense to them either. They failed to see Jesus because they failed to see him as a suffering servant. They failed to see him who he truly was because they were spiritually blind. Their need and ours, our desperate need, right, is that a Savior would come and conquer death, defeat sin. And that's what Jesus did. And, and even now, he's at the right hand of the Father in heaven and he's praying for us. He's praying for you right now in this moment. Jesus, risen, Lord of, of the universe, is praying for you right now. <laughs> that just boggles the mind. But the truth of how Jesus would become this victorious king was hidden from them because of the way he was accomplishing it didn't fit with their expectations. The lesson for us in this is that that we don't want to miss what God is doing by how he's doing it. Does that make sense? We don't want to miss what he's doing because what he's doing doesn't fit with my way of thinking. And so we, we say, ah, no, no, that can't be the Lord. The Bible is full of promises for God's followers. God's Word. He says, you're going to have eternal life. God's Word says that you're going to be blessed, that, you'll have a, that you will be a blessing, that you'll have strength, that, that you will have rest, that, that his love never fails, that, that you're his child, that, that he's going to fight for you, that, that he's going to give you wisdom, that, that by your word the devil will flee from you. Those are good promises. Those are promises of God for you as a child of God. But it's not all rosy. He also promises that you're going to face trials and difficulties. He also promises that, that you will be hated by this world as you are loved by him. So I get it that, that, our expect, that we all have expectations, right? We all have ways of seeing the world, like my horse, right? But two different ways. We all have ways of seeing things, and they come with expectations of what we see is means. But don't neglect what God says because of your feelings, by, because of your desires. Don't let those things, because of your expectations of how God ought to do things, don't let that cover over the, what he said was actually the way he was doing things. His word. Don't let, don't let my feelings, I can't let my feelings, like, I just don't know, that doesn't make sense, Lord. That doesn't matter, my feelings don't matter. Like, I know they matter, but they don't really matter. Because God has promised, that, and this is his revealed word, his, the Bible. It's our guide. For people of faith, the, the Bible is God's Word. It's God's Word. We accept it as reliable. What do I mean by reliable? The reliability of Scripture is that the Old Testament that we have here, right? The Old Testament we have is the same Old Testament that Jesus had. It's the same. That's what I mean by reliable. By reliable, I mean the New Testament that we have is the same New Testament that the early church had. It's reliable. We can trust that what we have is actually God's Word. It's actually the same. But not only is it reliable, it's authoritative. It has authority 
for our lives, for the way we live. It's our guide. It's our rule, our standard for faith and everything in it. Even when our emotions come into conflict with God's Word, God's Word has authority. Even when it doesn't make sense, His promises are true. When our emotions come into conflict with God's Word, we need to surrender to God's Word. That His Word has authority. So, so I ask you, let us, let us submit to who, who God says you are, His child, loved, loved, adored, empowered, who God says you are, and what God says about your future, that it's secure in Him, that it's beautiful, that it's full. Trust His promises. Trust His promises. And this leads us directly into an account that's in the next passage of someone who, who frankly had every reason to miss Jesus, but didn't. Had every reason to miss Jesus, but didn't. So, but before we leave, I just want to ask you to stop and consider for a moment. Are you able to see Jesus for who he is today? Are you aware of your blind spots? Are you, because are you, we all have them, right? But are you aware of your blind spots? Where you need to be saying, Lord, I don't understand this. This doesn't feel right to me. Can you teach me? Can you show me? pray that God would make you aware of your blind spots. The areas of your life that frankly are going unnoticed that are where your desires are not lining up with his. Then we see somebody as we continue at the, in verse 35. As Jesus approached Jericho, remember he's, he's going up to Jerusalem, he's getting close to Jericho. <clears throat> There's like four different cities named Jericho so we're not sure which one he's coming up to or he's going out of, so there's, there's a bunch of Jerichos. But anyway, the approach Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the side of the road begging. That's what blind people did. They begged. Why? Because they were outcasts of society. They couldn't fend for themselves. They couldn't work. I mean, it, was not a, it wasn't a world where there were services, social services to help folk. They depended upon the charity of others. Man with no support. He didn't even have a name, according to Luke. I mean, he... But, because actually, he really doesn't matter in that, in that time. He really didn't matter. Overlooked by everybody, even his family. Luke doesn't tell you his name, but Matthew, or Mark does. Mark tells you that his name is Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus, which means bar, means son of, so it's son of Timaeus. <clears throat> if you did a little digging a little more, you'd find out that Timaeus means highly, highly, highly valued or honored. The son of a man who's highly valued or honored. Names meant something back then, but here we have a blind man overlooked by society, outcast from his family because obviously he didn't live up to his dad's name. He didn't meet the standard of a man who's highly valued and honored. But he could hear. He could hear. He couldn't see, but he could hear. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked, what was happening? Ask the people who were sitting near him. <clears throat> because he sees the world through his hearing, right? And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. This isn't a, a term of respect. This is just a description. Of, this is Jesus, you know, that guy from Jerusalem, from Nazareth. Like, oh, yeah. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a term of respect. 
But for this man, he knew who they were talking about. He knew this Jesus. He had heard stories about this Jesus of Nazareth. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He, he knows that this is his chance. And he's not going to let him just pass by. I don't know exactly where he's at, but he's passing by, and I'm not going to let him get by, so I'm going to just shout it out. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. What I love about this declaration, have mercy on me, is the exact same one that the, the tax collector had back when Jesus was teaching the disciples about how to approach the Lord in prayer. Remember the, the Pharisee came before the Lord to pray, and he said, Oh, Lord, thank you. I'm not like one of them people. And then the tax collector was like, Lord, Jesus, have mercy on me, right? And here's this blind man praying that exact prayer. This is the only other time it's been prayed in the whole Bible. This is it. This is him praying this prayer. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. But somebody in the crowd told him, shh, shh, stop acting like that. Ever got told that before? Yeah, me too. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him, be quiet. But he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And what was Jesus' response to this prayer? What was Jesus' response to this man that didn't matter, that, that was no count, that was an overlooked by society, by his own family? What was Jesus' response to this man who everybody, that nobody had to pay attention to? Jesus stopped. Jesus stopped. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, but somebody calls out, somebody need a heart that's focused on the Lord, calls out to him, Son of David. Somebody who knows him for who he really is. Somebody who actually saw him, even though he's blind, saw Jesus for who he truly was, where the disciples couldn't. But now, we're going to talk about this in just a minute. They see him, and he stops. Stops and orders the man to be brought to him. And when he came near Jesus, Jesus asked him, like a rhetorical question almost, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith, your faith has healed you. He immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. Wouldn't that be your response? Like, <laughs> wow! Like, this guy was blind, but now he can see. I mean, this is, he becomes a visual aid for everybody, right? All around us today. All around you today. Maybe in this place. I know some of you here have experienced it. Physical affliction. Physical affliction. Sometimes this can be invisible to the outside, right? Things that are going on inside of us. A medical diagnosis can be an affliction, not, not because of the diagnosis, but because of our reaction to it, right? The burden that it becomes. It becomes an affliction to us in that way. We can have, an emotional, we can have emotional damage or trauma that becomes an affliction to us. Financial mistakes can lead us to being burdened. Relationships can bind us. Addictions can afflict us. And sitting in this room, there are people who have experienced all of these and more. And yet because of faith, because of faith, just like this blind man, you were able to see Jesus. You were able to see Jesus in spite of everything that was happening to you. Just like blind Bartimaeus. Afflicted physically, medically, relationally, spiritually, you knew that the Lord, when you heard him, when you saw him, you knew that was him. You knew that that was your hope. This is some of you here. Today you have problems. You have problems. 
but you don't let your circumstances, your expectations, blind you spiritually. So today I want to introduce you to somebody. Some of you already know her. Others, this will be your first chance to meet her. A sweet lady who had an amazing experience overcoming cancer. Come on. <laughs> Miss Marianne wanted, uh, when I, I, I shared that I would love for people to be able to share their testimony, uh, some folks had told me to ask her, and I didn't. <clears throat> but when she replied to my email, I was like, Yes! <laughs> I'm going to give her a chance to sit down because she's got a great story to share. throughout the years since cancer runs in my family. When I prayed that night, I asked the Lord to help me handle this cancer because I didn't know what to do. We saw Dr. Gupta and she ordered a colonoscopy through Dr. Taskin, a GI doctor in Easton, for February 1st. He told me I had a tumor in my colon next to my cecum some questionable lymph nodes, and a lesion on my liver. That evening, he called me at home and asked me if I had any questions and gave me his phone number to call any time. He reached out, out to me again the following evening. He had sent my information to a surgeon, Dr. Nader Hanna, at the University of Maryland in Baltimore. He said, I want to jump on this as soon as possible. During the days and the evenings, I prayed, Lord, you have to handle this. I don't know what to do. I had an appointment to see Dr. Han on February 8th. 
After meeting with him and reviewing my information, he suggested I take six treatments of chemo, and then he would operate. I took two chemo treatments, and by the third treatment, I was not doing well at all. Dr. Gupta advised me not to do the third treatment, but for me to see her the following week. She had sent a sample of my colon cancer to a specialized lab in Arizona. She received the results before she attended a conference in Washington, D.C. on the weekend of Saturday, March 26. She shared my information with a colleague of hers and also with the doctor that headed up the conference. She consulted with both of these doctors concerning my case. Her colleagues concluded that from the test results from the lab in Arizona, my tumor markers and other information, I would be a good candidate for immunotherapy. Immunotherapy is just what it implies. It has to do with the immune system. This treatment attacks the cancer cells. Chemo treatment attacks the cancer cells and also the good cells. Not everyone is a candidate for immunotherapy. The tumor markers have to be a match, and Dr. Gupta and her colleagues agreed that mine were. I had my first treatment of Keytruda, the immunotherapy medication, on March 30th. I took treatments every three weeks. I had blood tests two or three days ahead of each treatment. We spoke with Dr. Gupta before each treatment, and after every fourth treatment, I had a CT scan. She, <coughs> excuse me. Some days I would get anxious and weepy, and Frank would say, you are not alone in this. During my treatments, I had appointments with Dr. Shanahan every month. He reinforced my belief in the power of prayer and said, you know, I am praying for you also. Dr. Dr. Gupta corresponded with him and kept him advised of my blood test results and treatments. On September 15th, Dr. Gupta told me she had set up an appointment with the surgeon, Dr. Hannah, on September 22nd. After he went over all my health, the cancer shrinkage and so forth, he felt it was time to do the surgery. He told me that the surgery would be done robotically. He also advised me to cancel the immunotherapy. Each day and night I prayed, Lord, you have to handle this. I can't. Please keep your hand in mine. <clears throat> On the day of the surgery, I asked the Lord to wrap his arms around me as I was very concerned about the outcome. When they put me on the operation table, I was in a thin gown, shaking very badly, and the nurses put a blanket on me and wrapped their arms around me. The last thing I remember was praying, and then I was asleep. The surgery lasted five hours, longer than expected, but it was all robotic. There were no surgical cuts. I had four small incisions on both sides and a transverse one on my lower belly. Dr. Hannah removed part of my colon where the tumor was, 18 lymph nodes, and took part of my liver. The tissue was sent to be biopsied. A colostomy was not necessary. We met with Dr. Hannah for post-op on October 25th. After examining me, he said I was feeling I was healing well. He also gave me good news. 
According to the pathology report, all the cancer cells he removed were dead, thanks to the immunotherapy. Lord, thank you, thank you. We met with Dr. Gupta on October 27th. She took six vials of blood from me to send to two specialized labs. She wanted to check to see if any cancer cells were in my DNA. We met with her again on November 10th. She told me I was cancer-free. She also had been in touch with a GI oncologist, Dr. Eric Christensen, at Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore. She wanted me to meet with him to discuss preventive medicine going forward. My, <clears throat> my records were sent to him, and we met with him about a month ago. His specialty is colon cancer, and he told us the immunotherapy drug, Keytruda, was developed at Johns Hopkins. The plan is for every three months visits with labs and scans each time, which I will do for two years, transitioning <clears throat> to every six months after the two years. The six-month schedule will remain for another three years. This schedule will remain as long as the blood tests and scans are clear. All these experiences, discovering I had cancer in the emergency room, Dr. Taskin reaching out to Dr. Nader, had a, a top of surgery for colon cancer. The chemo not working, being a candidate for immunotherapy, the successful operation, and no cancer in my DNA. Colonoscopy, coincidence? No. God was working in my life from the very beginning. I'm so very, very thankful that I have a Savior who watches over me. I have been given a miracle. Amen. Amen. She wanted to make sure that you all understood the journey that she'd been on. Amen. <laughs> Amen. When the, I do want to say something. When Pastor Gary wanted me to had some questions he wanted me to answer, and I said, I really can't do it until I actually tell what has actually happened from the very beginning. So he's actually given me his time. <laughs> <for me to speak. laughs> okay. No, thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So did you ask to be healed? It was late in the afternoon when I first found out about the cancer and I was numb. When I went to bed that night, so many thoughts were running through my head. I finally asked the Lord to help me handle this cancer because I did not know what to do. While praying later, I asked the Lord to heal me of the cancer if it is his will. As time went by, I asked the Lord if I could not be healed of the cancer, would you give me time to live with the cancer? And finally, I asked him to handle the cancer because I could not. Thy will be done, Lord. Amen. Amen. I love that that was your heart, that, that regardless of how, uh, well, you, certainly you want to be healed, right? Mm -hmm. but, but you knew that he was, he was your healing. Yes. And that was that, that, that very evident in, in you. This one may not be on the sheet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. But no, but... Did you feel it? Did you feel God's prayer? Did you feel the prayers of people? Certainly I did. And I had so many people praying for me, not just Wesley and 
and rock hall and rom and whatever, but um, friends have contacted me that, that I hadn't seen since school, and they're, they had done it through their church, praying and everything. I felt a lot of prayers, believe me, every one. Can you imagine how, this one didn't on the sheet either, <laughs> but can you imagine, I mean, you loved Jesus before mm-hmm. yeah, you got cancer. Mm-hmm. That probably wasn't in your plan for life either. No, it was not. <laughs> what was your first thought? That I had cancer. When you were told. When, when I was told when I you were first told that you had. When you were first told that you had cancer. What the first thing I thought, hey, I've taken colonoscopies all these years. <laughs> <laughs> and here this last one, for some reason, just didn't okay. work out. And um, I thought, Lord, you, huh. you have to handle this. Amen. Amen. And now that he has handled it, what was your first thought when, when they told you you'd done it? They were all... That I was cancer-free. When you were cancer-free. Like, but um, what was your first thought when you had that? Well, when Dr. Hannah told me that cancer was dead in, in all the uh, uh, tests he had sent away, I just looked up and I said, thank you, Lord, thank you. And Dr. Hannah looked at me. And um, I said, I'm so thankful you were the doctor that did this. Because <laughs> uh, yeah, he was a top doc, and I don't know how how he ever, um, Dr. Paskin had um, actually contacted him, which all that took place. I didn't know anything about it. It, it happened. It was each step the Lord took. Yeah. I think I gave you this one ahead of time. But okay. how, is this, how have you found this to change your walk with Jesus? This whole experience, like, has it, what's this healing done in your life? Well, after I had the terrible pain in my right side, and I had to take trauma doll for the pain, and I slept with a heating, heating pad, gradually the pain went away, and I stopped the trauma doll on the heating pad. And I felt this was God's way of telling me he was with me through this ordeal. I felt God had heard my prayers and was with me during the hour. Amen. So that, that certainly gives you hope for no matter what yes, comes your way. Amen. Praise God for that. Can I pray for you? Sure. Amen, Lord. I thank you for what you've done, Miss Marianne, and, and Mr. Frank, God, how you, uh, you, you strengthened him, Lord, to, to be a caregiver for his wife. And he was just a role model to so many uh, in the way he did that, Lord. I, but I thank you for your love for them, for their love for you, and for your church. Lord, I ask that you would uh, uh, use her story to impact somebody else, God, that, that, that it wouldn't just be for her, but it would, it would be for us. It would be for your church. It would be for others who need to hear a word of hope. We praise you, God. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Okay. You can keep it. Consider that a gift. <laughs> All right. Yep. Amen. Amen. Give her a hand. Lord, have mercy. Amen. 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 Funny, when I, I told her I was going to ask her some questions, she was like, oh, no, 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 you can't do that. Amen. But it's a testimony of what God can do, what God has done, right? Let me ask you something. Not everyone has the hope going into their affliction that she did, right? Not everybody. So, so as someone who has the hope, when was the last time you noticed somebody 
When was the last time you noticed someone afflicted who needed hope? Because just as we were just saying, if they didn't have the hope, like what, what do you cling to? What do you, what do you cling to? There's a lot of people that don't have that hope, that are going through stuff, that need to know what you know, need to know who you know. They need someone to say, when they say, what's, what's the noise? That's Jesus. Let me point you to Jesus. Three things real quick about Bartimaeus' cry and Miss Marianne's cry as well when they cried out to the Lord. First, the, the word that the, he used, the Scripture uses for his cry, the first one was just a normal old shout, right? The second one, though, was the shout that, like, a mom's going to have when her kid's running out in the street and a car's coming. It's a whole different kind of, whole, it's a shout on a whole other level, right? It was not going to be denied. This is my opportunity. I'm not going to let it pass by. I'm crying out to God. God is going to work. God is on my side. God has promises for me. Bartimaeus knew that. Bartimaeus, secondly, he cried out in faith. He cried out in faith. That's what that cry was. A cry of desperation, but a a, a hope-filled cry. And third, Bartimaeus, he asked for mercy, absolutely, but it doesn't stop there. He didn't just ask for, God, bless me indeed. But no, he specifically says, I want to see. I want to be healed. God God wants us to pray specific prayers. Specific prayers. Because I can tell you, I can tell you, you could do a lot of things to Miss Marianne Doolin. But one thing you'll never be able to do is deny her the believing that she has been healed miraculously by God, that he has worked in her life in a way that, that nothing else did. Why? Because it was a specific prayer that was answered. When Jesus said, your faith has healed you to the blind man, that word healed you, that word made you well, was actually much more than that. He wasn't just saying you're healthy. He was saying, that word is sozo. That word he used is sozo. And that same word was the word he used when he was uh, talking to the rich young ruler earlier in Luke chapter 18. When the, when the ruler came to him and said, what do I have to be to be sozoed? What must I do to be saved? He couldn't do anything to be saved but faith. The faith of this blind man, the one who saw Jesus for who he truly was, is what saved him. And my challenge to my friend Mary Ann Doolin and to all of you is the same as what Jesus concluded this with. the way this story ends. Mark and Mammy says that, that he was healed, both spiritually and physically, he was healed. And the first thing he saw was Jesus. That's pretty cool. The first, when your eyes first open, the first thing you see is Jesus. But he didn't just, that wasn't, that wasn't the pinnacle, right? Mark and Matthew's account tell us that Jesus told him when he was healed, go, you've been healed. Go, go do your thing. But what does the man do? He follows Jesus. He follows. That's the only response to spiritual enlightenment, to spiritual healing. That's the only response to salvation, is to follow him. And that's why he just says, sell all you have and come and follow me, because nothing else is going to matter. 
promise you could ask Miss Mary Ann, does anything else matter? She would say, absolutely not. Absolutely not. When you have Jesus, you have everything. I pray you see that. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you, God, that we have no place to go but with you. I I ask you, God, that for those who are here today who, who, who don't see, that they would come to know you. That today would be the day when they might surrender their lives to you. Father, meet us here. In a prayer of surrender, in a prayer of acknowledgement, who you are and what you can do, we love you, Lord. Praise you. Amen. Amen. So we have one more song to close with, but before we sing that, I just want to give you a couple of takeaways, a couple of things that uh, that are going on in the life of the church that you need to be made aware of. First is that tonight is our fourth and final session of Living Faithfully. It's a, it's a book that's required for a discernment process that Wesley Chapel and Rock Hall Church are going through in regards to disaffiliating from the United Methodist Church. So if you're a member here, if you're not a member, you're welcome to come and be a part of the conversation. Uh, regardless, we, we encourage you to come and participate. Secondly, uh, on the 22nd of this month, there's going to be a meeting after church to talk about this that y'all have been experiencing, uh, this doing church together. Uh, so I encourage you, if you can, the 22nd of January, there's, there's going to be another one in February when we're over at Rock Hall. Uh, but the 22nd, to stay around after church and, and talk about uh, what's the, the direction of a, a merger of our congregations, the the disaffiliation. There's a lot going on in the life of the church right now. So it's a chance for you to ask questions and, and I pray get them answered. Third thing is on the 28th of January at 8.30 a.m. in Easton. I know all that's like, nope, you just lost me there. Uh, <laughs> in Easton, there's a district meeting that's for your church uh, as part of that disaffiliation process. So there's some information there in the bulletin. There's a page on our website that you can go to and you can read all about it. Uh, some information. Just stay engaged with this process of the merger of everything that's going on. I encourage you, if you're a member of the church, stay connected. Read all those emails, Michelle. Uh, <laughs> uh, because we put stuff in there for you to know that you yeah, might have questions about or someone else might have a question. You could have either answer giver. All right? Amen. I invite you, if you would, uh, to stand and sing with us as we send each other out today in worship. If you would like somebody to pray with you, I invite you to come on up to the altar. We'd love to pray together.